0: All right, you can be seated, and we'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back. I got you. And as they're headed there, if you uh, brought a Bible with you, um, open it to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. That is not what was just read. That was out of uh, Psalm 78, this beautiful picture of the words and ways of creator God who has come to be with us and know us and temple among us that knowledge of him would be passed from generation to generation and we're talking about uh, we're in the middle of this a couple week series called courageous parenting And it's not just for parents today. What we're really talking about is just the idea of discipleship, how discipleship, how we take what we've learned and experienced and walk in, specifically uh, the trustworthiness of our Father, God, and we pass that down from one generation to the next. That's what discipleship is. It's learning uh, to conform your life um, into the way that God intended it to actually be. Most of that is done in uh, the realm of parenting. Your kids are your, this is bad bad grammar, but they're your frontest front row, if that makes sense. We use this idea of, of taking the gospel to your front row, the people in your life that see you up close. And your kids are the frontest of the front row. They see, they see all the things. Parenting is the most demanding and challenging task of life. No job even comes close to it. Raising this new human, you're never ready for it. It's not by accident that the parenting begins with the process called labor, and it never ends. Well, it ends when you die, I guess. The trouble with being a parent is by the time you feel like you've actually got some experience under your belt, your kids move out of the house. It's full of frustrations and challenges eventually they move out, but you're always a parent. Before Ashley and I got married, I had a few parenting theories and no kids, and now I have a few kids and no parenting theories. Last week, Jason started this series that we're doing on the family, specifically how we pass on these spiritual truths to this next generation, and I wanted to just set the stage in here About a third of you in here probably don't have children in the home, meaning they're grown and out of the house, or you're newly married and no kids yet. Maybe you're a single adult, several teenagers in the room, a lot of grandparents in here. But you don't get to pass on hearing God's voice today. God has a word for you. You've heard the famous proverb that it takes a village to raise a kid, and it certainly does. I would argue that your voice, those who don't have kids in the home, that your voice is more important today than ever in our history. As we look back, as I look back at the dozen monumental God moments of my life, about half of them came through people who were not my parents. A youth pastor who loved me, uh, a youth worker, a small group leader. uh, Just, I remember Clay Jacobson, this, this wise man at the church I was at previous, and he always just had the joy of the Lord on him. And he always had a word for me, and it was so encouraging and uplifting and always right on time, you know, as God, as, as God does it, maybe a friend. Just so many of these moments as I look back, and I wanted to talk about all of them, but it would take the it would take the full hour, so we don't have time to do that, but so impactful. So as we listen to the, the passage that Emily read, it's beautiful, paints this beautiful picture of passing on greatness of the gospel from one generation to the next, and this is God's words right to his people to say listen this is how i created it don't neglect this great task of passing on these spiritual truths we're not going to hide them it says in verse four from their children but we're going to tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the lord and of his might and the wonders that he's done one of the greatest things you can do is grab someone younger in the faith they don't have to be younger than you but maybe younger in the faith and just talk about how God has performed his might in your life to take them and show them a couple weeks ago we were in New Orleans and it was great to 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 go visit a church that my dad had started and and really where my faith as far as I can remember back my faith started to emerge I remember God answering prayers I remember a, a pit bull almost attacking me in this new building that we had purchased, and some (laughs) volunteer had rigged up a nail gun to shoot without the safety, and he loaded that pit bull with these bullets. I mean, with these nails. is awesome. I I remember, and then we sat down (laughs) in the midst of all that. I was probably six or seven, and thank the Lord, right, for saving my life. Um, I just remember so many of these things, and this is what he's talking about here. This, for the past 10,000 years, this has been how spiritual truths were passed on generation to generation from mother and father to their sons and daughters and then from as they become mothers and fathers to their sons and daughters most people lived in multi-generational homes at that time and so it wasn't just taught from mom and dad it was taught from their parents and even aunts and uncles that still lived in this little lean-to kind of thing that they had going on 10,000 years. As far as we go back in history, this is what we can see. But something changed uh, about 150 years ago, if you can think back maybe to the late 1800s, the early 1900s. A son and daughter would learn a trade from their mom and dad. They would spend 12 hours a day in face-to-face communication with their parents. They would eat breakfast with them and lunch with them and dinner with them. They would they would learn schooling likely from likely from their mom or dad they would learn how to read and write they would certainly learn the trade of of their dad so that they could make money and this is how things happened this is not a new concept is what i'm trying to say for 10 millennia before this is how we learned of the faith well with the industrial revolution and with people going away to work and i'm not saying any of those things are bad with mom and dad maybe both with uh, school being uh, done somewhere else in, in and in a, in a more uniform kind of way we fast forward 100 years and the average time I've read this statistic a teenager spends in face-to-face communication with their parents without distraction is 30 seconds a day 30 seconds The average American spends 20 minutes a day walking their dog. Can you imagine? And we wonder why faith hasn't been passed on from generation to generation. To dig a little deeper, Christian Smith, this author and researcher, tells us this statistic, and it's been true and increasingly true for the past 25 years, that 70 percent of teenagers who graduate from high school an active participant in a good gospel church they walk across the stage on graduation sunday and they walk out of the church never to return some of them do come back 30 years ago that number he was guessing as uh looking at the research was about 25 percent would come back but that number is dwindling so fast And I know this to be true. Before planting this church, I was a youth pastor for 12 years, and I loved it. I loved the teenagers. I loved their energy and their fire. Last week, I was not here. I was serving some of our church planters. I was in Phoenix. I was attending this new church. They were five weeks old. It was called Fixate, and they were all young people. I was the oldest one by me and this one other uh, gray-headed, bald guy. We were the only guys over 40 in the whole thing, and they were all 22 and 23 and 25, and they were just on fire for Jesus. That, that worship was incredible. I love that fire. I love the bold faith and their impressionable hearts. And I come from a, a season in church history that, that, we, that we called, and you don't really need to know this, but it's called the Church Growth Movement, where we thought if we just hired the best professional to be our youth pastor, kids pastor, whatever, and we built him the most state-of-the-art buildings and equipment— then parents who are so busy with their own things, and of course I'm painting in a really broad br- brush, with a really broad brush, making some generalizations. But if we could get the greatest professionals and the greatest buildings and the greatest budgets, and we, then parents with their busy lives could just drop off their kids, and then we, the professionals, have been trained in college and seminary and all these degrees and New Greek and Hebrew. We could train the teenagers. And eat a lot of pizza at the same time. It would be just like this glorious thing that would hold in balance. We learn a little Greek. We eat a little, you know, pepperoni pizza. It's just what. And I had so much fun teaching them. And we learned some incredible things together. But one thing is clearly missing. As I look back over that trajectory, this statistic is true in my ministry. That 70% of them walked away. And it's because we missed one critical thing the emphasis that God gave us on parents being the primary faith trainer of their kids. So it didn't work, or it only worked 30% of the time. Which brings us back to the Shema. The Shema is a Hebrew word that is referred to by Jews today of this passage in Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4, because it starts with this word here. Hear, O Israel, these are words God is speaking to his people early on in their journey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, strength, strength, And these words that I command to you today shall be on your own heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is a prescription, parents and second voices, and grandparents and aunts and uncles and 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 single adults and, and married with no kids. That this is a prescription of how we take the truth of who God is and who we've encountered Him to be, and are still walking with Him and encountering new things all the time. That we get to take that vibrant relationship with the Creator God who loves us and we get to participate in passing on the greatest thing that we'll ever pass on to the next generation. that is this faith that is the gospel this is a prescription of how we do that and that and these work in tandem like two wings on a plane both necessary for it to fly last week jason really dove into this idea of your belief and love and your practice of the faith being so important friends if it's not true with you then it's not true If, if it doesn't play at home then it doesn't play maybe that's what i'm saying no matter how well you teach it, no matter how good your youth pastor is. Uh, growing up, I told you this story before. Uh, my Mamma Joyce, <clears throat> used to uh, smoke Winston cigarettes, and I only know that because she sent me down to Landmark Grocery all the time to go get her a couple packs. And she'd give me a twenty dollar bill, which could buy more than just two packs of cigarettes. It could also buy a zero bar and a Dr Pepper. And yeah, that's why. So I was like. Yeah. Yeah, grandma, I'll go do that. So I'd run down, I'd get her stuff, and I'd come back. And we had this room, it was called the gun room because it was lined with guns. Anyway, another story. <clears throat> we were definitely in the south, of course, and uh there's a thousand or two thousand guns on every inch of every wall, and but uh that that the window looked uh three side by side windows that look right out to this ginormous oak tree, and uh Mamaw had all these uh bird feeders. And so we would sit and she would smoke those wince cigarettes i can still remember the smell now if i smell them i'm like oh I, I remember that and i'm sure i inhaled enough secondhand smoke to die an early death i'm sure i did that was just the part of life and we would look at the birds and she would tell me uh what kind of birds they were and we would just we would just talk we would talk about life but but but, Grandma always said luke listen luke don't you ever smoke these cigarettes because they, they'll kill you and i would like grandma well, why don't you stop smoking them? I mean, they they look amazing. I mean, you love them. You spent twenty dollars today on some. That's 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 impressive. And so then she would get up and she would leave the room, and I would look at that cigarette butt sitting right there, and I'd be I'd pick it up, and it was it was out. But I'd put it to my lips, and I felt like I was so cool as a ten year old. You know, you can't you can't pass on what you don't believe. What you don't really believe. I'm not talking about religion, I'm not talking about playing the games, I'm not talking about if you say that you think that Jesus is the real bread of life that satisfies the deepest hungers of our soul, if you believe that, your kids are going to see that. But if you don't believe that, it doesn't matter what you tell your kids. They're going to see. If you believe that Jesus is the wellspring of life, that keeps running when it's with its own source, the Holy Spirit, inside of us. If you believe that, your kids are going to see it. It's just not going to be a mistake. So you have to love it yourself. But then you have to invest these truths in those around you. And I do this, and this is so just simplified. This passage is so much more meatier than this. But I'm going to, so we can remember it. I'm going to put it on the three headings of lead them, teach them, and train them. This passage in the Shema contains some universal laws of spiritual growth. No matter the time or country or language, this is how we pass on Christian truths to the next generation. Whether our kids, whether they're in the youth group, whether, whether we just have, we're, we're their coach, whatever it is, this is how we pass them on. We, we lead them, we teach them, we train them. So if you want to help raise kids or help direct other people's kids... It works best within these frameworks or these spiritual laws. And I'm not saying that God can't work outside of these laws. He does. He does all the time. I'm a product. My parents are a product of this working outside of these normal realms. Neither of them grew up in a Christian home. My parents, they may be culturally Christian at best, but they both had God the grandmothers and second voices in their life that, that invested these truths in them, these seeds of the gospel. And then I'm a product of my parents faithfully doing this from youngest of age that I can remember so let's talk about leading them this is what all the shema is it's just that we would understand this weightiness or responsibility to lead those coming up behind us discipleship is not something in a book it's, it's something in a life It will always happen within the context of relationships. And we grow best by letting Christ live through us. This is why he starts with the heart piece. You got to learn to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We We grow by letting Christ live through us. This is what Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 1. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you. God, what is your plan for salvation for all those who don't know you yet? I'm going to deposit... The beauty of the gospel in a life, in a person. I'm not going to write it necessarily in the sky. I'm not going to send out little Bibles to drop like manna all over the world. I'm going to put the seed of the gospel in a person, and I'm going to put that person in their life. And we are some of those people that God has placed in very dark places so that we could be the beauty of the gospel. This is what he's saying. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He doesn't just say Christ, the hope of glory. No, Christ in you. As Christ works, as Jesus works and matures you and sanctifies you and brings conviction of sin and inspires you and loves you like you were meant to be loved. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says it again in Philippians 2, for it is God who works in you. We grow by letting Christ live through us. So God's working in you and through you. That's what discipleship is. It's learning to become more and more like Jesus. It's the heart work of Jesus, transforming our hearts, empowering us by his spirit to live out supernaturally changed lives and doing that in front of our front row. To lead someone is to practically say, hey, come and follow me as I follow Christ. You remember back in elementary school when they had the line leader do they still do that the line leader i don't know what genius or evil teacher came up with that bribe as i look at such a shallow bribe but i was i i took the bait i mean i i was the guy who like traded in all my little uh, good behavior tickets not for a teddy bear not for candy but to be line leader for an extra week why why did i do that i have no idea it was so important to me i remember coming home with such excitement i'm the line leader for the week everybody got to follow me to the bathroom everybody got everybody gotta come follow me hey don't walk faster than me i'm the line leader get behind me we're go to the bathroom and we're gonna go to the cafeteria we're gonna go do all these things right this is the this is the line this is the line leader yeah i know it's a bit ridiculous but th- this is how god designed our, our kids to follow us this is what we do with our kids. This is what Jesus was always doing with his followers. Not just setting the example, but he would set the example. You remember this, and then and then he would stop and say, "Hey, hey, did you did you see what I just did? Now I want you to go do this." He saw him do this multiple times. I mean, crack, crack, casting out demons, uh, proclaiming the kingdom of God to those who are near. I remember that the time and maybe. The thing that affects my heart the most is in John 13 where he washes their feet. you ever heard the story. He goes in and he he washes the disciples' feet because they wouldn't do it. They were too proud. Remember, they were the ones arguing about who's the greatest. They would dare not stoop and humble themselves. So Jesus does it, and he does it, and he goes back, and he sits in his chair, and he said, do you you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and that's right. That's who I am. But if I have washed your feet... You ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. Man, what a powerful point. And I, if, if you read the actual story, you can see there's some pretty donkeys in the, in the room. He's got, some, he's got some disciples that did not deserve such a thing, even argued with him when he tried to do it, and Jesus did it anyway. Anyway. And I think about my life. And you know what part of this I like to obey? I'm okay washing other people's feet as long as they're people with really clean feet. Because I do not, I mean, I'm I'm not doing all that like in between their toes thing. There's no way I'm going to do that. And Jesus, but he didn't give us that out. He just said, listen, if you've seen me do, I want you to go do. This is how we lead. The Apostle Paul, we've walking through the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul says this in almost every one of his letters. We don't have time to go through all of them, but in just a few First Corinthians, he says, I urge you then to be imitators of me, to remind you of my ways of Christ. And then in, in chapter 11, in case he didn't get it, be imitators of me again as I am of Christ. In Philippians 3, brothers, join in imitating me. In Philippians 4, you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice those things. In 2 Thessalonians, he talks about it. In 2 Timothy, he talks about it. Friends, you are leading your kids, whether you want to or not. Either you're leading them to treasure, trust, and love Christ, or you're leading them to treasure, trust, and love simply their own effort. So we've got to lead them we got to take on the mantle. Here's the, here's, the, here's the best part about it. Jesus says, come to me, all those who are burdened, who are weak, who are stressed out. Come to me, bring those things to me. I, and I say that because this is not something that's burdensome. It really is not. It's just us yoking ourselves to Christ. You know, you know the yoke was the agricultural term that went over maybe, maybe two or sometimes three oxen. And they would all pull it together. And so the strongest one would carry most of the weight because he was the one kind of pushing the speed. And this is, we we yoke ourselves to Jesus and we don't have to carry any of the weight because he's the one who carries it. This is the beautiful part of this. So, this is how we lead. Next, we got to teach them. We got to lead them. We got to teach them. He says in verse 7 that you shall teach them diligently to your children, teach them diligently. Think about all the things that we diligently learn, that we diligently pursue, our education system. And then and then it, it, it's levels of elementary and then middle and junior high and high school. And then maybe you, you go to college and you get this degree. And maybe you stay in and you get this even more advanced degree. And then you can get a doctoral degree. And we are diligently pursuing the transferring of knowledge of something we did know to something that we do know. Well, what process is there by which we diligently teach our kids your kid probably spent 30 or 40 hours this week in a school somewhere learning something and that's good for them but how many hours did they spend with a mom or a dad who's been transformed by the gospel that's passing on these truths to their kids that we should live by faith that God is trustworthy that you can bring your burdens to him I'm serious. What how much time do we do? I mean, if we're being really honest in this room, I feel like if I say, you know, Jason just talked about family worship, that Jason, that feels impossible to me. Thirty minutes a day? I mean Do you see how far we've drifted here? We're to teach them diligently. What this passage is commanding us to do, families, is to teach your kids, not just algebra and English, but to teach them the most important things that God created them and loves them and has a plan for their life and has given them the gifts of the Holy Spirit so that they can go and supernaturally bring the gospel to dark places. That's the most important thing. And this is not one of those beat you up sermons. I just want you to ask the question, how are we diligently teaching our kids these things? Several years ago, I watched this uh, YouTube video of the backwards brain bicycle. Have you ever heard of this or seen this? This, this guy had, so he worked at a place and uh, uh, the engineers and, and welders started, to, they wanted to play a, a joke on him. And so they welded a bicycle that when you turn right, goes left. And when you turn left goes right and they bet him like 500 dollars that he couldn't ride it within the first five minutes and he couldn't and you i'm going to send the video out it's too much for me to show today but it's it's incredible and he tried and he couldn't do it so he committed you know what i'm gonna learn how to i'm gonna ride this bicycle now he'd learned the neural pathways of his brain the synapses you know as as these things connect together they they create these little 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 paths and then these dirt trails and then these these roads and then the more we do something it creates these super highways that we know how to coordinate our hand and balance and push a pedal and go forward so there's these huge highways that are saying this is how you ride a bike and this was a different bike but he was committed to retraining his brain how to do this and he did it he said five minutes every day and he and it's it's he's got a thousand video clips of him just trying and trying and trying and falling and falling well eight months took him eight months trying every day to ride this new bicycle that when you turn right it goes left and you turn left it goes right and then he wanted to, his little kid, he had a six-year-old kid, his kid said, Dad, I want to learn how to ride that bicycle. So he had one fashion for him, the little six-year-old. He'd been riding his bike for half of his life. For three years, he'd been riding a bike a certain way. And he gave him some kind of bribe about meeting an astronaut or something, I think the video says. <clears throat> Remember, my bribe was being a line leader. They could have got a lot for that for me. Just say, hey, hey, you can lead the family, Luke, just to the bathroom and the dinner table. Um, <clears throat> What took him eight months took his six-year-old two weeks because the neuroplasticity of kids is so much stretchier and greater. And I think we understand that. that's why kids learn languages better first. I had a professor, a Greek professor in a seminary who had taught his kids five languages before he was six. Five. Because your, your brain can just get them and they can go back and forth. Now look at the strategy of the enemy today. And it's the phones that we put in kids' hands. That that we have been training them a certain way. I mean, when do you give a kid a phone? 10 or 12 or 15 or whatever it is. We've been training them a certain way for a decade or 15 years or whatever it is. And while the brain is still the neuroplasticity to a a girl's about 18, 19, to a boy about 21 before their brain is fully developed, and these things are really kind of rigid, they're hard to change after that. The strategy of the enemy let's put a cell phone in every kid's hand sometime in their in their most impressionable years and let's hire engineers and marketing gurus and let's pay them millions of dollars to change the neuroplasticity of our kids brains so they'll never trust in the lord because they're not trying to get your kids to trust in the lord no they're just trying to make money they're trying to convince your kids that they will never have peace and joy and satisfaction without this shiny new thing they're trying to sell. And this is, I'm not, I'm not fussing about the, I'm not saying you shouldn't give your kids phones, my kids have phones, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, parents, we got to be thinking through this. Ne- next week in our little equipping class, and this is a commercial for that, we're talking about how to tackle the technology monster. And I think you should all be there if you want to learn. And I'm not saying that we have everything figured out, but maybe there's some principles that we could learn together and then we could be courageous parents together. Because you know what happens when you tell your teenager that they can't have a certain app or Instagram or whatever, that they're like, well, dad, all my friends have it? Baby, all your friends don't care about your soul. Your mom and dad do. And so we're gonna say no to some things that you think we should say yes to. Because we're trying to protect your heart, babe. And we need some courageous parents who lock arm and arm together and say, this is going to be our new rule of life. This, this is going to be the things that we promote. Not because the world's out there just because everything's bad. No, but because something is so much greater than that. We got to teach these things diligently to our kids. Well, why do we teach them? Well, there's a lot of good things to teach them. Again, this is best learned through your life. As you're learning it, you teach it to them. As you're learning how to take a step of faith, you teach it to them. In Acts 20, Paul says of his responsibility I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God new american standard uses that phrase the purpose of god the niv says the whole will of god it actually means the whole word of god in colossians 1 paul says of which i became a minister according to the stewardship from god that was given to me to you to make the word of god fully known now yes that's the apostle paul that's the job of a pastor that's my job as a pastor but you know what if i didn't even have this job as a pastor my job when i go home is to pastor my family and to declare to them the whole counsel of god the whole word of God. Now, certainly that doesn't mean, this is not inferring to every line of every passage of Scripture. Paul didn't have time to teach that to them. But it does mean that it's not just the parts that I like to talk about or the parts that might cause me and my family to be happiest because to teach the whole of Scripture means to teach even the toughest parts. We got to teach them and teach them diligently. I'm so excited about our new kids' curriculum, the Gospel Project, as it walks through all of the Bible. If you're coming to this church and you're going to come to this church for the next ten or twelve years, that your kids, when they're one or two, are going to be learning some of these principles of faith, that we're just going to build on these same principles when they're two and three and four and five. And then they get in this next this next group of first grade, second grade, they're going to learn these things layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. And all we're doing is trying to just just, just throw the softball to you as a parent. Every week you're going home with a little guide. And this is what your kids learn. Why don't you ask them about it? Why don't you, once you take this role, right, being pr- primary faith influencer your kids? Why don't you just ask them, what does it mean to live by faith? What does it mean for our family to live, live by faith? Remember, spiritual growth is, is habitual. We don't do these just when after a sermon like this and we're all excited about it and we're going to go home and tonight we're going to do it. No, how do we make this a habit? There's a myth that spiritual growth just happens that you can just attend you can have a Bible in your home, and spiritual growth is going to happen. But it doesn't work like that. Spiritual growth is developed as we develop habits to learn the words and ways of Jesus. A friend of mine calls these the holy habits. Again, and the earlier you start, the better. and there's a lots of these, and I'm going to boil them down into four. Let me just give you four, and I've got scripture to back all these up. Again, this is not a defense of those things. I'd love to talk to you about these if you want. The the habits that we can have as a nuclear family, the holy habits that can create the environment where spiritual truth is going to be passed on. First is corporate worship. And not that you would just take them to church and then you would go somewhere else. And not that you would just come here and just attend, but that you would be involved in this that you would sit under the teaching of the Word of God together, that you would let your kids see you emotionally moved by the Word of God, by the singing of songs of praise to God, by the conviction of sin, through repentance, through prayer, through intercession, through weeping, that we would be moved in corporate worship. And then second is family worship. I almost didn't call it that. It's what Jason talked about earlier because it just sounds so formal and out of reach. A friend of mine calls his family night, and he does it once a week he does it, they have pizza, they sit around the table, they have a psalm, they read it, they just talk about the goodness of God as found in this psalm, the good parts and the hard parts, and they call it family night. Corporate worship, family worship, and I I say this because I feel like most of you in this room, you, you know this, you got this. I was bringing, kind of changing the atmosphere of the pseudo ministry i was before this to kind of get this more where parents are primary faith of their kids and trying to equip them and i had a deacon the head of our deacons at this church that i was at before this really wise guy worked at a christian uh college campus was really high up in their ranks and he came to me and said luke i have no idea what you're talking about what, what do you mean you don't know what do you mean ken you don't you don't know what i'm talking about yeah you you, you said I have family worship night and and you know just teach your kids what you're learning how do we know oh, oh, how do I do that? Well, you just, you just get out your Bible, and you read a couple verses, and you ask with your kids, what does God say? Turn to Psalms, Which says, a steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Friends, what does that mean? It means that the greatest thing that you could ever pursue, the greatest height that you could ever achieve the greatest person you could ever know is to walk in love with your heavenly father through the work that Jesus did on the cross. And then you can know that the greatest love from God the father is better than life. Thirdly is prayer, corporate worship, family worship, prayer. Just bring blessings over them. We've got resources we can put in your hands of things to pray for your kids and pray over your kids. Don't not do this because you feel ill-equipped. And then fourth is serving the least of these. I think this is so important. I think in this materialistic world that we live in, we have to show our kids and put our kids in situations where God begins to break their heart for the global poor. And without this, I don't think you have a holistic idea. What did Jesus say? That we're to, we're to hand a cup of cold water out in his name. Well, to who? To those people who are thirsty. We're to serve a plate of food in his name. Well, to who? Our, my, my neighbor's got plenty of food. Who? Well, to the people who are hungry. All of these are disciplines in our lives. Not so we can be better people, but so that we can know Christ. And listen to what he's telling us and then act upon it. This happened both formally and informally. But let me challenge you with this. Start simple and just look for God moments. This summer we were uh, driving down to New Orleans for a little mission trip and I had some, uh, you know, country music on the radio. I wasn't really listening to it. As a matter of fact, I may have had one earpiece in listening to something else. And Hudson said, Dad, I think I told you the story before. He said, Dad, is cold beer really that good? I was like, what do you mean cold beer really that good? He's like, man, every, every station, every, every, every person singing about this cold beer, it must be amazing. I was like, well, you know, I don't really like it, but, but maybe it is, man. I, you know. And I thought, I had the Holy Spirit check in my spirit. That my son is being discipled to what I listen to. I don't even drink beer. He's being discipled by the music I listen to. You get that? So I made a decision that I would try as best I could as I was cognizant to listen to worship music that would direct their hearts to God. Yesterday, we're all in the car. We were listening to the song Ancient of Days. It was two days ago, it was Friday. And Hudson pipes up from the back and said, Dad, why do we call him the Ancient of Days? What does that mean? And I said, well, look, this is just a name for God, really, of Jesus, that he was there in the beginning, that he's before all time. And we had this little God moment where his little mind, his little heart's trying to wrap its understanding around who God is and how big he is. And, well, how could that be? Where did they live before time? Well, I said, well, they live in heaven? I was like, well, we don't really know, but heaven is really wherever God is. So if he's there, then that's where it is. That's the, the heaven is the presence of God. And he's like, Dad, that makes no sense. I said, Well, Hudson, you know, you know, Isaiah says that you know God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and His ways are higher than our ways. You know, imagine this would be like you know you taking he's 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 learning uh, division, uh, three or four digit division. And he said, This is like you taking three or four digit division and going out in our backyard and trying to teach to an ant. Sometimes you're just not going to get the whole thing right. He's like, Yeah, I get that. And so we keep talking a little bit. He's like, Dad, it's okay. Stop. I feel like I'm the ants. It's cool. It's cool. <laughs> this is this is a God moment. This is how we teach them formally and informally. Finally to train them. I know I'm out of time. We train them. Training them is still leading them, and it's still t- teaching them, but it's also coaching them and correcting them and showing them. A good trainer... Will come alongside someone and show them what they're not doing right and show them how to do it. This is how you put your hands. This is this is where you set set your legs. This is this is this is where your focus needs to be. You train them. That's what he says here in this passage said, if you keep going, you shall teach them diligently to your kids, and you should talk to them when you sit in your house. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you bind them as a sign on your hands and as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on your doorpost in the house and your gates. You see that he's, he's saying it's everything in life. This is not this sectarian motto where we say, okay, this is going to be the time where we really talk about the love of God. No, it's in all life when we're driving and getting up, when we're angry, when we're in the midst of conflict. We're always, we're always teaching them that God is trustworthy, that he loves them, has a plan for their life, and wants to give them spiritual gifts, and he wants to send them out to reach a dark world. Spiritual growth is multidimensional. It's holistic and integrated and all-encompassing and comprehensive. Do, do you get the point? It involves everything. There's a myth in Christian christianity that maturity is measured only by how much you know so if i just learn more then i'm going to be a better disciple but that's not necessarily true the ones that knew the most about who god was in the new testament were the ones that stayed angry at jesus all the time it's not how much you know but it's who you know it involves all forms Jesus would reckon back to this idea when they came and asked him what the greatest of the laws were. He would go back to Deuteronomy six and pull this forward. As a matter of fact, it's in your Bible several times throughout the Old and New Testament. Jesus says that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, and with your mind and with your strength. And then he adds one to it, but the second is this. You know how you prove that it's really happening in the first dimension? heart, mind, soul, strength is what you do in the second. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment from the words of Jesus that is greater than these. Do you notice just real quickly two things about that passage? Jesus uses the word all four times, stressing God lays rightful claim on every facet of the human life and personality. All your heart. All your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And each of the four commandments is prefaced by a preposition. In Greek, when Jesus quotes this, he's using the Greek language, it's the EX, meaning from the source of rather than by means of. Here's just what this means. So we are commanded to love God in our heart, soul, mind, and strength, not simply with our whole heart, but from our whole heart. This is not a work of the flesh, is what I'm trying to tell you. In other words, this is not one of those sermons where you're going out, and it's like, I gotta go out there and I just gotta do this. Rather, this is a fruit of the love of Christ residing in you in a very real way. A disciple will love God in all ways from the transformation God is doing in and through him or her. With all your heart, that's your character. Does what you say line up with how you live? With all your soul, that's conviction. Do your kids see you repent? Apologize for the little and the big? This is a convicting thought I had this week. When's the last time my kids saw me repent, not from an outburst I had that they were present in, but from just simply reading the Word of God? That I let them in on my own walk with Him? my own repentance and the motives of which I had. With all your mind, that's your comprehension. To see the work of God in all creation. Claire and I love to, to watch sunrises and sunsets. And you know I'm a guy that loves to go to the beach. And so the last day of our beach vacation, we always we always get up really early and get our coffee and we go out there when it's still dark and we stand on the beach with all the dog walkers and really old people. And we're there and we see the sun peek up a little higher, a little higher. It's amazing. You've never done this. Everybody on the beach stops. Believers and atheists together. And they're just in awe of this part of creation. And I don't remember if I brought it up or she did. We just started talking about it. Can you imagine what creation's going to look like when Jesus restores all things? What did creation look like before the fall? C.S. Lewis says he thinks the trees could talk before the fall, and maybe so. He's a pretty smart guy. We know the animals could. What did a sunrise look like before? The effect of sin tainted it. That's loving God with your mind. It's comprehension. It's just thinking about these things the favor and love of God. And then finally, with all your strength. That's your competence when we align our good intentions with real actions. Not just to hear the word of God, as James says, but to do it. To bring to the Lord our best energy and output. What does it look like if we're going to obey the book of James where it says that real religion takes care of the widows and the orphans? What does it look like for us to obey that? What does it look like for the warning that we shouldn't slander or gossip? What does that look like? What does it look like that we should be generous with our resources? Not just talk about it, but in a way that our kids participate in us living it out this is how we train our kids, friends. Our hearts and their hearts, our souls and their souls. Dallas Willard says, parenting is as much for us as it is for them. Because we all have blind spots and God has designed your children to expose yours. Talk about convicting. I heard someone else say, it's an 18-year internship where we teach our kids what it means to be loved and to love, to trust in their creator. We grow in spurts. I don't want you to be too discouraged. The reality is we grow in spurts. There are some seasons of great growth and some seasons it looks like when nothing's happening. I told you the story when I used to be a youth pastor and try to teach seventh graders Bible study and they would just fart the whole time it's true, it would drive me crazy I just wanted to cast demons out of them I may have even tried and turns out they were just early adolescents. <clears throat> you know what's cool a couple of months ago Irvin came and preached and he was one of those kids he didn't have Christian parents but somehow the seed of the gospel was planted in him it didn't seem like it was working for years it was so discouraging. Do you know it can take bamboo seventy years to grow? Seventy years. And it just grows maybe an inch a year. But on the seventieth years it can go it can grow three inches an hour. I feel like that's some of the gospel seed we put in our kids' lives. It's going to grow in spurts, and you can't make it grow. You can just be faithful in the planting of the seed. You don't control the soil. You don't control the weather. All you control is the planting. Friends, what's the... What has the gospel really done in your life? Is it really actively changing your life? Are you holding, as Hebrews talks about, unswervingly to the hope that we have in Jesus? last thing i'm going to say before we take communion is that gospel seeds grow best in the soil of grace you need to give yourselves grace and you give your kids grace and you need to show your kids what it means to give other people grace you remember that time when jesus was invited over by the pharisee simon he's in the middle of this dinner And in comes this woman with a real past. Everyone would have gasped when she walked in. She starts weeping and washing her hair with his feet with her hair. And Simon thinks, surely this is not the son of God if he would let such a woman with such a sinful past touch him. And he told this little story about a man who had been, he said, who do you think would, love the most a man who had owed a 10 million dollar debt and it was forgiven or this other person who owed a 40 dollar debt and they just said don't worry about it and he said well i guess the one who was forgiven much would love much you see the grace let me pray for us god Holy Spirit, I feel you moving in our hearts. And you're just uh, like a skilled surgeon. You just reveal the things in us to cut out the lies that we believed of the enemy, the sin that so easily entangles, the cultural things that we've planned our lives around. And you just keep cutting that stuff out if we'll let you and i pray we let you today we're going to take communion in a minute we're going to physically taste the bread and the juice as a reminder of what true love really looks like as a reminder of the extent that grace really really went And I pray that we would leave here with the reality that we are beloved daughters and sons of God. Just incredibly loved. Invited into this table where we're accepted. Really more than that, that we're just delighted over by Jesus himself. And then we're going to walk out of here with your heart. I pray that we would have your heart. Lord, those in this room who've gotten cold and hard and bitter and apathetic, and those that have all the doubts, that are confused. Sometimes I, I feel like Hudson, I've the ant. It seems She's like all, all that, that kind of melts, melts away when I'm in your presence. presence. All the confusion just kind of fades away so i just pray god would you do that work in our hearts we're gonna have a prayer team in the back friends if you need to go pray with someone it would be their greatest honor to pray with you whether you're praying that you'd be a godly parent or you're repenting over some sin in your life or you're interceding on behalf of someone who's not here do what God puts on your heart. Lord Jesus, we love you. Do in us what needs to be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll join others in the back. Take as much time as you need. Pray right where you're at. If you need to, the communion servers are here. Communion is not, we have an open communion. It's not just for people who belong to our church, but it is just for people who are part of God's family. So if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus before, or even if you've done that today, I invite you to come grace that God has bestowed to you. Again, the prayer team be in the back when you pray with someone. Do what God puts on your heart. Don't let this moment pass.